Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. July is almost over, the inevitable march of time goes on, but we've got some great articles for you this week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. How about a little bit of good news to kick us off this week, eh? Oh, that's what I want. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how there has been a lot of news about how antibiotic-resistant strains have been kind of a big deal for really a couple of decades now? Sure, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, there has been a breakthrough thanks to a team of Princeton researchers. They reported in the journal Cell that they have found a compound called SCH79797 that Mm. can basically act as what they're calling a poisoned arrow. And that refers to how current antibiotics typically work. So bacterial infections usually come in two flavors. They're either gram-positive or gram-negative, and those are named for the scientists who discovered how to distinguish them. And the difference between the two is that gram-negative bacteria have this armor. It's this outer layer that shrugs off most antibiotics. And in fact, no new classes of gram-negative killing drugs have come to market in nearly 30 years. Whoa. So what they found is that this is the first antibiotic that can target gram-positives and gram-negatives without resistance, which is a pretty big deal. Mm. Yeah. So the greatest weakness of antibiotics is that bacteria evolve quickly to resist them. But what this team found is that they were unable to generate any resistance to this compound which is basically the holy grail of antibiotics research, an antibiotic that is effective against diseases and immune to resistance while being safe in humans, unlike rubbing alcohol or bleach, which are not something that we want to do. It's effective, but only for a very short time. (laughs) Right, right. So this is basically, you know, for an antibiotics researcher, this discovery is almost like riding a unicorn. This is like a really, really big deal. This is something everyone wants, but nobody believes really exists. And so James Martin, who is a 2019 PhD graduate who spent most of his graduate career working on this compound, he's quoted as saying, my first challenge was convincing the lab that it was true. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's one year out of school. I can see that. Like, yeah, <laughs> we've been working on this for a while, buddy. I'm sure you solved it. Yeah. We found the holy grail. Uh-huh. Sure. And so what they have referred to, I mean, it's got a really long name, SCH79797. They're calling it irresistant because it has no detectable resistance. They have to kind of use this hedging language because proving a negative is technically impossible, especially in the science world, right? Yeah. They basically had to try so many different methods, like brute force. For 25 days, they serially passaged it, meaning that they exposed bacteria to the drug over and over and over and over again. And bacteria take about 20 minutes per generation. So the germs had millions of chances to evolve resistance, but they did not. And so they also tried serially passaging other antibiotics, which quickly bred resistance. So that was their way of trying to check and prove that it could not be resisted, which is why they call it irresistant. 
So it's been effective against bacterial species that are known for antibiotic resistance, including Nesseria gonorrhea, which is on the top five list of urgent threats published by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a big, big deal. So they even got a sample of the most resistant strain of this gonorrhea, and they had to go to the vaults of the World Health Organization to do it. Sure, because you don't want to let that out. No, no. You want to make sure to test this in very careful circumstances. But this particular strain is resistant to every known antibiotic. And they were able to show that this irresistant still killed the strain, which is a big, big deal. This molecule is a single molecule that uses two distinct mechanisms. And again, they likened it to an arrow coated in poison. So this arrow has to be sharp enough to get the poison in and break through that armored coating. But the poison also has to kill on its own, too. And the typical antibiotics we have do one or the other, right? They can break through or they can have the poison. But this is the first one that uses both in the same molecule, which is what makes it so incredibly effective. So have they actually confirmed that it's safe for humans yet? That's a good question. They're basically still trying to discover the applications and things like that. Um, They found that each of the two mechanisms, both the arrow and the poison, target processes that are present in both bacteria and mammalian cells. So they've basically, you know, at least discovered and published this. Obviously, they got to have way more tests and things like that. But this poisoned arrow paradigm could basically revolutionize antibiotic development. Yeah, I want to give a pat on the back to whatever marketing person came up with irresistant. (laughs) Like, it's a good name. It's not that hard to pronounce. It does sound like a drug, but it doesn't have a bunch of random X's and Y's in it. I think it's solid. It's very marketable. Agreed. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. So this one is also a drug-related article, but maybe on the flip side. Uh, It comes to us from Gizmodo, and it's titled, Some quote-unquote inactive drug ingredients may be anything but study finds. Ooh. Makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not all strictly bad news. Uh, It's more like, we just need to study more. But essentially, what they say is, some inactive ingredients commonly found in medicines may not be so inactive after all, according to a new study that was published in Science Magazine. Researchers found evidence in the lab that several ingredients, including certain dyes and preservatives, are capable Mm -hmm. of affecting proteins, receptors, and other parts of our biology, possibly in important and noticeable ways. They're quick to point out that these findings aren't proof that these ingredients can harm people, but they do suggest further research is needed. Mm -hmm. So the scientists looked at thousands of different inactive ingredients, which are also known as excipients. They screened them for their potential to interact or bond with any number of molecular targets found in the body's cells, including the ones that are really important, like those that regulate our levels of neurotransmitters like dopamine, aka, you know, the happy chemical. All in all, they identified 38 inactive ingredients that interacted with 44 different molecular targets. And these include ingredients meant to be used as food dyes, preservatives, and disinfectants like DNC Red number 28, which is commonly used for drugs and cosmetics, propylparaben, which is used in many water-based cosmetics such as creams, lotions, shampoos, bath products, and also used as a food additive as an antifungal and antimicrobial agent, benzethonium chloride, which is used as a disinfectant, And in some cases, the level of activity that they saw from these interactions is what you'd actually expect to see from the active ingredients of some drugs. 
Mm-hmm. So wait, so you mean the inactive ingredients can have an effect equal to the active ingredients? That's what it says. Yeah, this article kind of uh, skims over the details, but that's a pretty big one that seems to pop yeah. out of the study. Yeah, see this stuff, it makes me so mad because it, I feel like any logical person would recognize, yeah, if you put 50 ingredients in something, what are the odds that 49 of them do absolutely nothing? And this one ingredient does exactly what we want it to do. Also, it has a bunch of side effects that we'll read off very, very quickly at the end of the commercial. But don't worry about that. And and this has been borne out, I think, in my personal experience where I've had, you know, just over-the-counter medications or something where I can tell a difference in side effects or whatever between a brand name and a generic. And sometimes the generic is better. Sometimes I react badly to the brand name, but the generic is fine. And mm. people will sit there and say, oh, no, it's not possible. Well, it is possible. They have different yeah. ingredients. Yeah, and you don't know how all of those ingredients may affect or work with each other inside the human body because everybody's physiology is different. We all know Mm -hmm. that a lot of testing that are done for these can often excerpt women or people of color and things like that. Like typically, if we're only majority testing on white guys, we're not going to get a full picture of how all these things work. Yeah. And I read a little bit through the comments of this article as well. And there were a bunch of people who are also like, yeah, no, duh, I can tell because I've had experiences where when I was taking a generic drug, all of a sudden I would start to have a reaction to it and found out that it was because they changed the manufacturing process or the manufacturer entirely that they're using. Um, Mm -hmm. Particular for people who had celiac disease and the manufacturer then changed to some inactive ingredients that also happen to include gluten, which is Mm -hmm. very not inactive for somebody that has celiac disease. Celiac, yeah. Yeah, that's one of my also personal pet peeves. I'm just on a giant soapbox about this article in general because I have my my kids have to avoid gluten. And it's one of those things that, you know, people make, oh, gluten is a fad. And then, like, one of the things that they talk about especially is, like, oh, like, gluten-free meat. You don't even know what gluten is. You're just following the fat. It's like, no, actually, meat often has gluten injected into it. And it's like people, yeah, well, because they put it in broth and they inject the broth into the meat to make it like moister. So, I mean, but that's just one example of places where it's like it's everywhere Mm -hmm. and people really don't even realize it unless they truly have to avoid it. I know that I've been avoiding parabens and things like that. There's a website called the Environmental Working Group where they'll rate sort of the toxicity of different ingredients and cosmetics and sunscreen and things like that. I know parabens have kind of been high on the list for potential, I think, hormone disruption. So it seems like this article is being a little bit vague about like what effects they've seen. Obviously, we need to study it more. Yeah. So more studies like this one have been coming out that are showing that these inactive ingredients can actually have dramatic effects. So one example was thimerosal, which is a derivative of mercury that's used in some adult vaccines as a antimicrobial preservative. And they found evidence that it could bond to certain dopamine receptors in the brain and gut with high enough activity that it could make a, quote, physiological effect plausible, unquote. They also have been emphasizing the lack of other evidence so far for any bodily effect of it, including the debunked links between vaccines and autism. Yeah, now thimerosal has been on everybody's radar for a long time as one that they're like, no, no, it has no effects, except then occasionally it has effects. And they're like, well, okay, (laughs) but it doesn't have those effects that you said it has. It only has these other effects that we haven't studied yet. Like, it's it's a very uncertain chemical for Uh, sure. Yeah, it's a a series of known unknowns effects with all Mm -hmm. of these drugs. So one thing that Shoichit is clear to say is that he's saying we do not prove they are toxic, far from it, but it's nevertheless an area where the field can improve. And it opens up a new research direction. 
And one thing that they are saying in the study is that it's unlikely that many of the not-so-active ingredients they found can even reach the types of molecular targets they identified, because most of the targets are outside the digestive system where the drugs usually end up. Mm. However, it is possible that the situation can change under different circumstances, like if the drug is taken via injection instead of as a pill, or for people who take multiple medications or have a leaky gut that will allow drug ingredients to seep into the bloodstream in higher concentrations. Yeah, leaky gut is another one of those things that more and more people are sort of recognizing as a real problem for some people. And it means that everything you take is getting out into your system and all sorts of stuff that they said was safe is already known not to be safe. If it gets out of your digestive tract, which they've always said, oh, no, no, that's not possible. But it's like, oh, actually, it is possible (laughs) with some people. Yeah, absolutely. To think that anything is going to just sort of stay localized or isolated in the human body seems Mm -hmm. a little naive to me. Yeah. Yeah. So the study was conducted partly with funding from the FDA, as well as collaboration from the pharmaceutical company Novartis. And Shoichit himself actually offered praise to both of them for being willing to conduct the expensive study, especially because the results could cause them a headache and lead to (laughs) changes in how their products and other companies' drugs could be produced. So it's actually really good that this study is happening at all, even though we are clearly like very boohoo about the topic in general. (laughs) Yeah, not any cheaper than all of the lawsuits that may later come come in if they get hammered with those later, even though I know there's a lot of legislation that's protecting a lot of these pharma companies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, long term, not harming people better than harming people <laughs> from a business sure. perspective, <laughs> you know, just thinking the about the business position. of it all. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Shoichit is just hoping that people will continue to build on his team's work overall. And he ends by saying it would be great to test inactive ingredients more comprehensively than we can afford to. We only scratch the surface. And, you know, like you said, a pat on the back for the pharmaceutical companies for not doing the completely evil thing and actually being willing to study this stuff. But also, like, I don't know if you deserve a cookie for (laughs) looking to see if your product is going to hurt somebody. I don't know. Right. The due diligence was an assumed, but I guess it's good for us to know that this is not an assumed and we can check our expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, this one has absolutely nothing to do with drugs. It is from (laughs) Wired. It's by Cody Cassidy. And it has a great title. It's called How to Outrun a Dinosaur. Nice. It's basically, uh, apparently, a whole series of recent studies have come out on the running speeds of various dinosaurs. And the big piece of information that affects how fast the dinosaurs can run is something known as the square cube law. And it basically is as an object expands and grows in volume, its volume cubes while its surface area only squares. Mm. And this is why small creatures can survive falls even if they've reached terminal velocity. Like, I think there was a thing that went around recently where, like, you could throw a squirrel off a skyscraper and it wouldn't matter. It would land and live. What? Because basically your relatively larger surface area is what absorbs the impact of the relatively smaller mass. So, like, you could throw an ant, you could throw a spider, anything that is sufficiently small can handle its own terminal velocity because it doesn't weigh that much. But then as you get bigger, obviously, people thrown off of buildings do not make it. Mm. And this has been known for a while, this sort of relative association between volume and surface area of living creatures. It was back in 1926, a biologist wrote that a mouse dropped down a thousand foot mine shaft would survive, a rat would die, a human would break, and a horse would splash. So they've understood this for a while, but variations of the square cube law apply even to animals who don't jump off of buildings. For example, bone strength only squares as volume cubes. So what that means is that larger creatures require proportionally more muscle mass just to stand up. 
and not break their Mm. bones by simply being on them. Mm -hmm. And beyond a certain size, things like running become physically impossible, right? Like if you imagine an elephant, it can kind of jog along, but it's not running, running full speed, part because basically its legs would break. And so this bone strength issue was the subject of one of these papers that came out recently in Nature by John R. Hutchinson. And he basically demonstrated, given what we know about their bone size... A T-Rex could only manage a light jog of about 12 to 13 miles per hour. Now, it should be noted that this is also the top sprinting speed of humans. So you're not, you know, out of the woods if you're getting (laughs) chased by a (laughs) T-Rex. But then there is a second factor that also doesn't scale, and that's energy production. And that proportion isn't quite as bad as the square cube ratio. It's about a ratio of 0.75 to 1. So basically, for every one unit of volume that you go up, your energy production only goes up 0.75. And what it means is that if we had the ATP production and metabolism of a mouse, we as humans would have to consume 25 pounds of food per day. But I accept this challenge. <laughs> nice. Obviously, uh, normal people, not Angie, consume four pounds of food a day. <laughs> and, and thus, basically, what it translates to is while we have plenty of endurance, we do not have the ability to accelerate with the same speed that a mouse does. I don't know if you've ever had to chase a mouse, but the mouse can outrun you. Another scientist named Miriam Hurt found that you could plot animals' acceleration on what turned out to be basically a perfect logarithmic scale based on their weight. And the peak of the scale is about 200 pounds. That's about the ideal weight to size ratio for something that wants to accelerate as much as possible. And then it starts to go down again. And so she extended the graph for the the known estimated weights of dinosaurs and found that any dinosaur over 6,000 pounds simply could not be a threat to humans. There's no way it could accelerate fast enough that we couldn't just outrun it. So what dinosaurs should we be afraid of? Well, none, but (laughs) theoretically, uh, the the general answer that the article gives us is medium-sized, which is like the raptors in Jurassic Park. They got that right. But then a third scientist actually looked into body design, which matters because if you think about a cheetah and a human, they weigh about the same, but obviously a cheetah is much faster than we are. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with, you know, their pelvis and their hips and the way their muscles are structured within their body. So Alexander Desaichi combined hurt speed data with equations we know about hip height and stride length, and again, sort of applied that to what we do know about dinosaurs. And there's a great chart in the article with these sort of dinosaur silhouettes and a little running away man, and they're ranked from mildly concerning to very concerning. (laughs) (laughs) Peaking with dinosaurs like the Delta Dromaeus agilis, which tops out at 30 miles per hour, and they're like, yeah, you're definitely going to die if one of these is chasing you. (laughs) But there is hope. Alan Wilson, who's a professor at the Royal Veterinary College at the University of London, he studies the chase patterns of predators like cheetah and their prey, like impalas. And he attached accelerometers to both animals and then basically kind of let them (laughs) loose and tracked their exact speeds and like run patterns. And he noted that even though a cheetah can go over 50 miles an hour and an impala absolutely tops out at 40, the impala still escapes two thirds of the time. Cheetahs usually don't catch their prey even when they go after it. And actually, the impala rarely goes over 30 miles an hour. It just isn't even bothering to run at its Hmm. top speed. And the answer is because it can dodge and weave, right? Ah. And this is the point where the advice of this article gets very specific. Um, They say, (laughs) like, if you're running, this is what you need to do. Write this down. (laughs) They say, at the beginning of the chase, you need to change direction a lot, but don't decelerate. So basically, you want to do like a serpentine, you know, kind of back and forth across the Sahara or wherever this dinosaur happens to be chasing you. Mm -hmm. And then as the dinosaur does get closer, 
but he gets more tired, then you want to start to decelerate quickly and make bigger directional turns where it's like you suddenly stop and go to the right and you will ultimately be able to outlast your pursuer through endurance. Well, you know, I feel like our Jurassic Park situation is probably more likely given the number of totally wild and irrational billionaires that are doing all kinds of crazy things with their money. You know, that's right. Not as far fetched as it was back when the movies came out. That's right. It may very well come in handy. Remember this. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article is from the Washington Post. It's called Blowing Out Candles is Basically Spitting on Your Friend's Cake. Will we ever Hmm. do it again? Unfortunately, I guess yes. (laughs) Wow. I never thought of it like that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, you know, obviously where most of us have seen these videos of people singing or speaking or blowing and those plumes of air coming out Mm -hmm. of their faces and all the droplets. And they've got a really great quote from Cassie St. Ong, who's a comedy writer and television producer in Los Angeles. And she says, the tradition of blowing out candles on a cake has always kind of grossed me out, to be honest, even before COVID. I played the trumpet for years and have always known too well just how much spit a person's breath contains. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a spit valve. It collects all that stuff when you're just playing the dang instrument. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was actually a big problem. I played in the orchestra. I played a stringed instrument, but we would occasionally join up with the band. And because our concert room was bigger, they would come to us. And we would always complain so much because there would be little puddles all over the floor by all their chairs because they'd empty their spit valves. And I was, oh, we hated them. It was awful. Just on the floor? (laughs) Yeah. Wherever? Yeah, because it fills up while you're playing. You got to dump it so you can keep playing. And they always would say like, oh, no, it's not really spit. It's water vapor. And I was like, no, Uh, that's spit. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Well, the article goes into a really interesting history of the pairing of cakes and candles as we kind of know it today. So History suggests that it has been part of humanity's story since ancient Greece, which is when candles were ceremonially placed atop a cake and brought as a worshipful offering to the Temple of Artemis, goddess of the hunt. Very pagan origins. But then once birthday parties were added to the mix, it was probably around 18th century Germany, thanks in part to one Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, best name I've read all week. And this gentleman celebrated his birthday in 1746 with a lavish bash featuring a massive cake festooned with candles. And so then it became very de rigueur for Germans to start placing a candle on cakes. The fire was meant to represent the light of life itself. But from the start, the act of extinguishing the flame was infused with symbolism, right? The idea was that the smoke would carry your wish up to the gods. And then, Mm. you know, as part of the process of individuation in the industrial age, it became increasingly about a single person's wish instead of the wish of a community. So when you blow out the candle that carried your very special snowflake wish out into the universe, (laughs) which is, I think, how we're pretty familiar with it, right? Sure. And so the tradition took root in the United States at the end of the century before the 1918 flu pandemic. (laughs) We can't really say for sure how birthday parties were affected or altered during that particular chapter of history, but the pandemic didn't really stop anyone from blowing out birthday candles once the crisis ended, which may reveal something about how quickly germophobia subsides once an imminent threat has passed. As Jennifer noted, you probably think they're coming back again if they have even gone away. (laughs) I mean, they've they've got all these articles about like, will we ever shake hands again? I'm like, yes, we'll be shaking hands within another 
six months. Like it, people right, are not right. going to change a couple hundred years of tradition just because of one no. fear. That, I mean, people, we're super good at being in denial. That's that's right. And it's not like <laughs> this true. is information that has just come about because of COVID in 2020. Like in 2017, there was a widely circulated study that was unappetizingly titled Bacterial Transfer Associated with Blowing Out Candles on a Birthday Cake. And what it <laughs> revealed is that when you're blowing out candles over the icing surface, it results in 14 1,500% more bacteria Ooh. compared to icing not blown on. So any microorganisms dwelling in the candle blower's respiratory tract will probably make their way onto your plate. And yet the upshot was still that the scenario is pretty harmless. So one of the study's authors told The Atlantic, quote, in reality, if you did this 100,000 times, then the chance of getting sick would probably be very minimal. Uh, mm. <laughs> I mean, it all comes down to whether the blower is sick or not. But if they are, your chances are like 100%. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So candle industry experts have weighed in. They're actually not seeing a slowdown. They're seeing exponential growth in the baking category as a whole. Birthday candles yeah. haven't slowed down. They're saying that cupcakes have also just become popular in recent years anyway. Mm -hmm. There are also some things that people are starting to do to try to make it a little bit safer. So some people are waving hands to extinguish the flames instead of blowing. There's also, um, if you look for homemade cake shields, you can find some images of those where they poke the candles through a paper plate. So it acts as kind of a guard for the icing. There are a lot of different ways that we can kind of try to minimize it. But don't give up. Stay safe. And that's right. That's and right. Be mindful about your birthday celebrations for a variety of reasons, especially now. I really want cake now. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, this article comes to us from the New York Times, and it is called No Longer in Shadows, Pentagon's UFO Unit Will Make Some Findings Public. Hey! Yeah, and I don't know if y'all recall, but a while ago I went on a mini tangent about how the New York Times published two or three articles in the span of a week about just straight-up UFO videos shot by their U.S. Navy and yeah. U.S. Air Force. Yeah. Yeah, so this is kind of about that. So, despite Pentagon statements that it disbanded a once-covert program to investigate unidentified flying objects, the effort still remains underway, but now it's been renamed and hidden inside the Office of Naval Intelligence, where officials are continuing to study mystifying encounters between military pilots and unidentified aerial vehicles. Because <laughs> yeah. that sounds so, better than UFO. It's No, yeah, no, it's a UAV UAVs now. now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Pentagon officials won't discuss the program, which is not classified, but deals with classified matters. But it appeared last month in a Senate committee report outlining spending on the nation's intelligence agencies for the coming year. And the report said that the program, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, was to standardize collection and reporting on sightings of these UAVs and was to report at least some of its findings to the public within 180 days after the passage of the Intelligence Authorization Act. Hmm. So they're about to dump a whole bunch of data on us that they've had for a while. Essentially, yeah. Ugh. Well, good. We all need that distraction right now, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just one more thing to throw in there. So while the retired officials who are involved with the effort, including Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader, hope that the program will seek evidence of vehicles from other worlds, its main focus is on discovering whether another nation, especially any potential adversary, is using breakout aviation technology that could threaten the U.S. Right. Senator Marco Rubio, who is the Florida Republican who is the acting chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, says that he was primarily concerned about reports of unidentified aircraft over American military bases and that it was in the government's best interest to find out who was responsible so sure yeah okay. and he also said 
that some of the unidentified aerial vehicles over U.S. bases possibly exhibited technologies not in the American arsenal, and he also noted, maybe there is a completely sort of boring explanation for it, but we need to find out. Sure. Well, sure. and I don't know that another country having better tech than we do is boring either. Like, yeah, Correct. aliens are more yeah. exciting, but yeah, I do think they should be looking into it, whether or not the answer turns out to be something fantastic or just something a little scary. Right. Either yeah. way, it is in the best interest of our defense to have a clear picture of what exactly is going on here, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the Pentagon's former director, Luis Elizondo, who resigned in October 2017 after 10 years with the program, confirmed that this new task force did evolve from the original advanced aerospace program. He says it no longer has to hide in the shadows. It will have new transparency. And Mr. Elizondo is among a small group of former government officials and scientists with security clearances who, without presenting physical proof, say they are convinced that objects of undetermined origin have crashed on Earth with materials received for study. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Th- this article does a fair amount of burying the lead, honestly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So for more than a decade, this Pentagon program has been conducting this sort of research, and in some cases, earthly explanations have been found for previously unexplained incidents, but astrophysicists say even those lacking a plausible terrestrial explanation does not make an extraterrestrial one the most likely. So they're really kind of, you know, playing it close to the vest, so to speak. Mr. Reed, the former Democratic senator from Nevada who pushed for funding the early UFO program when he was the majority leader, said that he believed that crashes of objects of unknown origin may have occurred and that retrieved materials should be studied. He said, I came to the conclusion that there were actual materials that the government and the private sector had in their possession. And none of these crash artifacts have ever been publicly produced for independent verification, but some retrieved objects, such as unusual metallic fragments, were later identified from laboratory studies as man-made. However, Eric Davis, who's an astrophysicist who worked as a subcontractor and then a consultant for the Pentagon UFO program since 2007, said that in some cases, examination of the material had so far failed to determine their source and led him to conclude, we couldn't make it ourselves. Hmm. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of people in the know who believe that there's aliens. Like, we don't know if they know actually any proof, but they've seen enough that they believe. And now they're going to slow roll it out on everybody to see how well Mm -hmm. we can cope, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Is now a good time? Are you guys ready for this? Now's a good time, right? I don't know. Honestly, like, now might be the best time. You know, we're all so distracted. It's a nice way to just kind of get it under the radar and everyone's like, all right, cool, whatever, and moves on instead of having all of our attention focused on this one thing. We're just like, okay, sure, why not, aliens? (laughs) This might as well happen this year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the constraints on discussing these classified programs and the ambiguity of information cited in the unclassified slides from briefings have put officials who studied UFOs in the position of stating their views without presenting any hard evidence. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Davis, who now works for the Aerospace Corporation, which is a defense contractor, said he gave a classified briefing to a defense department agency as recently as March about retrievals from off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Okay. Yeah. He also said he gave classified briefings on retrievals of unexplained objects to staff members of the Senate Armed Services Committee on October 21st, 2019, and to staff members of the Senate Intelligence Committee two days later. These committee staff members did not respond to requests for comment on the issue. The thing that I think everyone sometimes tends to forget is like, just because it was made by something else doesn't mean it was made recently by something else. Yes. Mm-hmm. It could have been flying through space for millions of years from what, who knows what direction, and we just mm-hmm. got some tiny piece of it. 
Like I'm fully mm-hmm. willing to believe that something came from somewhere and they're all long gone and dead, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like we yeah, will I mean... be someday. <laughs> <laughs> and all it takes is for us to identify it, reactivate it, and we'll create a homing beacon for them to come on by. That, that's oh, how that works, right? I've seen good. it in movies. Yeah, I mean, I loved Mass Effect, the game series. So <laughs> let's just bring that on. You've already been trained in that scenario, so bring it on. They made a yeah, whole show um, about that. Somebody training on a video game, and then it turns out the video game was real from another universe. Was a uh, future uh, man, last starfighter, right? Oh well, they probably made a lot now that I think of it. Also, <laughs> Ender's Game, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, we have found a whole lot of very specific fandoms on this podcast, and I always love it when yes. we find a group of people who are like really obsessed with one specific thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we have found another one with this next article. (gasps) It actually comes from a blog called spacecamera.co. And as the name implies, it is dedicated entirely to photography in space and the cameras that have gone to space and what technology NASA uses. And that's like this whole focus of this very small but dedicated group of people who are into this stuff. And there's apparently in this community a particular lore about how during the Apollo 17 mission, astronaut Gene Cernan left his camera on the moon. And he's oh, no. to- well, he did it on purpose. He's told the story repeatedly, describing how he left it wedged between the seats of the lunar rover, which they also left on the moon, pointing the lens upward so that some future mission could hopefully come back and find out the long-term effects of solar cosmic radiation on the lens. Oh. And it's it's pretty normal to just leave stuff on the moon. We've left a ton of stuff up there, just abandoned, because there's weight requirements, and it's like, do we really need the cost to bring it back is worth more than the thing itself, so let's just leave it there, because who cares about pollution on the moon, I guess? Um, <laughs> so apparently, that's sort of the story, is, oh, they left these cameras on the moon. But according to some very in-depth detective work by the blog author Cole Rise, this is not the case. Uh-huh. So the first thing to note about this mission of Apollo 17 was there were three cameras on the mission, and each one was assigned to a different astronaut, but they would frequently pass them between themselves. So like geologist Jack Schmidt had a black and white camera while Cernan's camera had color. So anytime Schmidt needed a camera that could do color, he would just sort of swipe Cernan's and they would trade them back and forth. They really considered them community property. Sure. Rise determined that, in fact, the third camera was a larger camera with a big 500 millimeter telephoto lens for like looking outward off the planet. And Mm -hmm. he's figured out that that is almost certainly the one that Cernan left wedged in the rover. He based this on some recorded transcripts of the astronauts' conversations as they were getting back into the ship. And the transcripts are all transcribed out. They're hard to follow, but Rise has kind of the relevant parts bolded. And then he explains what's happening. He explains the jargon. And basically shows, yeah, they said they were going to leave a camera and they left a camera. But the question is, what happened to the other two, including the one that was officially Cernan's camera? Because that was definitely not the one that they left wedged in the lunar rover. The stowage list of the material that was put back on and brought back, the official list according to NASA, says that these two cameras also stayed on the moon. And you would think that you would want to be accurate about that list because every item has to be counted for weight calculations. Like, this matters. And there's no cameras listed as being on board. But again... Rise goes into the transcripts and he notes that NASA had instructed them to jettison the two extra cameras in what's called a jet bag. But the astronauts wanted to take pictures of a planned spacewalk that was going to happen after they took off again. Astronaut Ron Evans was definitely going to do this spacewalk. They wanted to take pictures of it. NASA said, nah, you don't need that. But the astronauts were like, yeah, we do. We want to take those cameras. We want pictures of it. And so Cernan and Schmidt together decided, yeah, we're not going to jettison our two cameras. We're going to keep them. So even though they weren't on the list, if you look at the transcripts, apparently they did bring these two cameras back from 
from space. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know how big of a scandal this is outside of the space camera community, <laughs> but the, the space camera folks have always wanted to know, did they stay on the moon? And if they came back, where are they? Because they're not yeah. anywhere obvious. So RISE did a little more detective work and says that all lunar cameras are fitted with a Rizzo plate which is a clear piece of glass that goes over the lens that has a serial number etched into it that will appear very faintly on every photo taken with that camera. And Cernan's number was 1023, and sure enough, there's a little 23 in all of the photos that he took there on the moon. Mm -hmm. And some photos that have been released with this number on them clearly have been taken after they left the moon. So he's like, that's proof. It definitely left the moon. We just got to figure out where it went, right? And so kind of all these enthusiasts have believed for a long time that it came back. But in February, Cole Rise was just sort of browsing space camera Instagram, and he saw a photo of a lunar Hasselblad camera, which was the model used in Apollo 17, just from some random Swiss photography enthusiast. And he reached out, and the Instagrammer said, oh, yeah, I took a picture of this camera in the collection at the Omega Museum in Switzerland. And the backstory from them was it was on loan from NASA, but they didn't have any information as to whether it ever flown, where it came from. And so Rise was like, please, please, please go back and take more photos, specifically like get these angles high res as possible. I really need to see this camera. And so he did. And they showed it has an orange CDR sticker, which is only for cameras that go to space. And in addition, the Instagrammer got a very high res shot of the Renault plate on the front. And not only did it have the number 23, which means it was definitely Cernan's camera, but there were some small chips along the edge of the glass that match up perfectly with little artifacts in the film on the edge of all of Cernan's camera images from the movie. So it is 100% Cernan's camera. It's over in a museum in Switzerland. So Rise (laughs) has since been in touch with NASA to see if anyone there actually knows this camera's history. Maybe they just didn't tell the museum or they didn't think it was relevant. (laughs) And he still wants to trace, like, where's it been for the last 48 years? What's the path it took after it came back? Did it just sit in storage? Where's it been? No one from NASA has gotten back to him yet. He thinks Uh. part of that is actually because no one can get into the archives right now because of the coronavirus. It's just everything's shut down. So even if they could give him information, they can't get to it right now. But Mm -hmm. he did a whole lot of work to find the origins of this random camera. And, you know, you got to think, like, what are the odds he's just scrolling through Instagram and he sees a camera and he's like, that's the one. I mean, you got to know your material so well to be able to pick that out. So, you know, I got to have respect for anybody who is that dedicated to a subject, even if it's a really weird esoteric subject. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it enhances our whole body of knowledge. That's That's a net positive. Yeah. And, you know, there's people out there who are interested in the history of these things. So I think hopefully NASA will get back to him and give him some more information about what it's been doing for the last 48 years. <laughs> right. I also really like that it kind of almost imbues the camera with a sense of personhood. Like it has a history. Mm-hmm. And, totally. Uh, they're very invested in figuring out, like, what is this camera's story? It's a historic camera for them to kind of lose track of it the way that they have feels a little shameful. Yeah. Well, and I think Gene Cernan is still alive. So, I mean, he might have some interesting anecdotes or something to share about it if we were ever able to connect the two of them together again. Oh, that's the one. That sticky shutter. (laughs) I'd recognize that tactile (laughs) feel anywhere. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, you know, that was a really good and inspiring article, and I kind of want to stay in that theme. Um, (laughs) There's a really great article from The Guardian called Science Museum Asks Public to Help Identify Mystery Items. Oh. There are about 7.3 million items from photographs to devices that form the collection of the Science Museum Group. And a lot of these items have come to light because they've been transported. 
There have been about 300,000 items transported from the Blythe House in London to a purpose-built facility at the Science Museum Group's National Collection Center in Wiltshire. It's like a huge house move project, but with the added excitement that these objects are part of the National Collection and have incredible stories to tell, but a lot of these are still not very well understood. So some that they have found were a Chinese incense clock, which is a device with small square metal tray and maze-like stencils that had been something of a head scratcher until a curator who had spent time in China took a look. And the mazes were basically used to create a trail of incense that would burn for a specific length of time. Hmm. So the way that it works is the incense is burned. There are different fragrances and different fragrant notes throughout the incense wick. And these scent-based time measuring devices were often used during rituals or ceremonies. But there are a whole bunch of other things that they cannot figure out a story for. So in some cases, they've reached a dead end. And that's where it would be amazing to see whether the wider public, the hive mind of the public, can help us unpick some of these mysteries. And so they've got a gadget with a base that looks like a hat stand and a hook at the top, a semicircular scoop-like device on a handle, and a metal object in a silken box that is said to be an air purifier presented to Pope Leo VIII. Hmm. So there are a whole bunch of things on here. Often the only thing they'll know about the object is what potentially Sir Henry Welcome, who was the huge eclectic object gatherer, he died in 1936 and bequeathed a whole bunch of this kind of stuff. And so what they know is maybe what he would have known at the time when it was sold to him or bought to him by one of his agents or presented at auction. But a lot of that isn't really verified or has any kind of provenance documentation to back it up. So because this guy, this collector, was drawn to strange and curious objects, they're expecting a lot of these to be kind of very one-off, unique, experimental things. They are likely to be the kind of thing that maybe only one or two people in the world have ever seen before because that is the kind of thing he was after. Mm -hmm. He was after the edges of the human experience. So... They've got them listed up in the Guardian Gallery for images. You can drop them a line if you have an idea on Twitter, at Science Museum. No idea how they got that handle. Good for them. <laughs> um, and they've also got an email as well if you have an idea of what it's going to look like. So go on, take a gander, and submit your best ideas. I mean, I guess we're assuming from the outset that none of them are uh, UFO pieces. Like, <laughs> you know, that last article got me thinking it could be one of those things that travelers dropped off a long, long time ago. <laughs> Nothing else like it exists. We don't know what it was used for, but it certainly warrants a little bit more investigation. Yeah. Next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from AARP.org, mm -hmm. and the title is something that's been all in all of our minds. Just who hoarded all that toilet paper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we so... all have our, our ideas, but I'm glad to see someone has an answer. Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And you probably won't be terribly surprised by this article, as I found it kind of landed in the realm of duh science. Right. So these nervous shoppers, like a plague of locusts, began descending in mid-March <laughs> to wipe retail stores clean of toilet paper and create a global shortage. Wipe them but... clean, you say. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But a study it published in the online journal Plus One, PLOS One, found a number of factors, one of which was age. With hmm. increasing age, people tend to stockpile more toilet paper. Hmm. And the study suggests that older people may have been more eager to pair for strict self-isolation because they're more prone to experiencing the more severe symptoms of viral disease. Mm -hmm. hmm. But also, 
people who feel more threatened by the pandemic stockpile more toilet paper in general. Given that stockpiling is objectively unrelated to saving lives or jobs during a health crisis, right. this finding supports the notion that toilet paper functions as a purely subjective symbol of safety. Mm-hmm. Americans also stockpiled more toilet paper than Europeans, which the study suggested may be because of larger U.S. packaging, whereas we go up to 36 rolls compared to Europe, which has only up to 16 rolls. But the study does not mention that bidets are far more widely used in Europe than in the U.S., right, that's so true. it might indicate less toilet paper. I was going to chalk it up uh, to just American greed, but you're right. They may actually not need it as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, conducted the study. And from March 23rd to 29th, they surveyed more than 1,000 adults from 35 countries, including 250 U.S. adults. Hmm. And in terms of personality factors that make some people more prone than others to fear the pandemic, they concede that is much more elusive. But generally speaking, they found that about 20% of the hoarding could be explained based on people's dispositional tendency to worry a lot and generally feel anxious. Mm, And they also suggest that another predictor of stockpiling was among people with very high conscientious personalities, which include traits of organization, diligence, perfectionism, and prudence. Well, that sounds a lot Mm -hmm. more pleasant than anxiety. It's like you can look at yourself (laughs) as a highly anxious person. You can look at yourself as a planner who, you know, is prepared. (laughs) I'm just super organized, not operating out of total fear and paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess when you put those two things together, you get preppers. Yeah, for sure. You want to, yeah. yeah. It kind of is like, yeah, we don't really know, but it's anxious people and people who would actually be affected by the pandemic. So... Fair enough, I guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you got the study came out of Germany, so it's not surprising that they found, well, Europeans were better about this than Americans were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's all this article had to say. I would be very interested to know if this happened during 1918 as well, though I bet it did. Yeah, I don't know. How much? To- I, I don't know. Now you have to get into the history of toilet paper, which a whole, yeah. whole different article. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do not have time to get into the whole history of toilet paper. That is all we have time for this week. Some of the articles we did not get to do not involve toilet paper, but we do have The Surgeons Who Said No to Gloves, The Living Ghost Dogs That Haunt the Amazon, and Mold from Chernobyl Nuclear Reactor Tested as Radiation Shield on the ISS. So all of that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you do find an article that goes into the history of toilet paper, feel free to submit it. We always take interesting article submissions as well on the website. If you want to keep us on the air and help support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.